Hi, friends. Welcome to the Brave Enough Podcast. Grab some coffee, sit back, or enjoy your drive, and let's get authentic, real, and into the good stuff. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut, and I'm so excited to hang out with you today, where we're going to talk about life and work and all the messy stuff in between. So get ready. In Season 2, Episode 22, Sasha interviews Dr. Jed Woolpaw. Now here's your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut. Thank you for joining in on the Brave Enough Show. It's your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut. I'm really excited about today's guest. He is a anesthesiologist and critical care physician in the um, Hopkins University School of Medicine and Department of Anesthesiology. And he's an assistant professor, and his name is Dr. Jed Wolpaul. And I have to tell you that I was recently on his podcast, which earned me major credibility with my trainees, my medical residents and fellows in anesthesiology. So they were super excited that I was on his show because his show is probably the most popular anesthesiology and critical care podcast in clinical medicine. And it's a really novel way that he has taken on the approach of teaching clinical medicine this way to so many of us, uh, myself included. And so I'm super honored to have Dr. Jed Wolpaw on the show today. And we're going to be talking about some things outside of clinical medicine, which I think is going to make this show super interesting. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Sasha, thank you so much for having me. It was an incredible pleasure to have you on my show, as you referred to. And as I mentioned to you off the air a few minutes ago, you know, I've just received such incredible feedback for that episode. People out there are obviously incredible admirers of yours. They really look to you as a role model. And they loved hearing some of your thoughts and in your the own development of your your career uh, path along the way that we discussed. So, you know, it was really um, an honor to have you on the show and even more of an honor to be asked to come on yours. Well, I'm just that's very kind of you. And I'm I'm really excited because both of us um, are working specialties of medicine that oftentimes people don't really know what we do as anesthesiologists. There's a lot of like complexity and confusion. And, and I, I love that what you're doing is kind of showing not just, you know, you're teaching all of us uh, uh, clinical pearls and safety and quality, and really having so many great speakers on to talk about different aspects of medicine. But I love that you are an anesthesiologist personally, because I'm like, this is so cool that we both have things that are kind of showing the world and the public what we do. Um, even my mother, when I told her, you know, years ago that I wanted, I think I was going to choose anesthesia. She's like, those are doctors. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So I think there's a lot of confusion and I think it's awesome that what you bring, um, you are many things. Uh, you also are a parent. And so tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up and tell us about your family and your, and your wife and your kids. We'd love to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up uh, a little little suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, called Shaker Heights, Ohio. Um, and I was there until I went to college. I went to Brown University undergrad in Providence, Rhode Island, a wonderful place. And uh, I actually studied history and thought I was going to be a high school history teacher. In fact, I did go on to do a master's in education right out of, uh, of undergrad. Um, I went to Harvard for that. And then I started teaching. I was a high school history teacher. I taught ninth grade world history. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I loved it. Uh, I especially loved the teaching of it. I was always, a I liked history. I was never a huge history buff. I decided to teach history, not because, you know, I was just fanatical about history, but because history was that class 
at least for me, where you kind of got to really, you did debates and mock trials and you talked about citizenship and what it meant to be a citizen of the of the community and the country and make change. And, and it was that that I was passionate about when I was going through it and so thought that's what I was going to get to do. And unfortunately, it turned out I became a teacher right at the time when all the state graduation tests were coming into being and really were being told, we, the teachers were being told, you know, you really can't do that stuff anymore because you have to teach to these tests and that mm. stuff isn't on the tests. And I found that very disillusioning. And as much as I loved my kids and working with them and trying to you know, help them in a lot of ways, um, I didn't love the, the kind of very strict curriculum that were being forced on us. And so I decided to make a little change of pace. Now, it seems like a huge change of pace to go from that to medicine, but I had actually grown up around medicine. Both of my parents are physicians. It was something I'd always thought hard about. And my parents had gotten very involved in medical education. So I, I kind of was thinking at the time, you know, I could go into medicine, which I really am interested by, but still very much be a teacher. And that was kind of an exciting concept. So even though it was a long road, I decided to do that. And I switched and did kind of finished up some pre-med stuff I still had to do and then applied to med school and was very lucky to be able to go to UCSF in San Francisco. So I moved out to San Francisco and started med school there. Um, and then, you know, finished that kind of thought I was going to do emergency medicine, uh, matched in emergency medicine. I was an ER intern when I fell in love with critical care, which I had not done as a, um, as a medical student. And it turned out back then you could not do critical care through emergency medicine, though mm. you can now. Gotcha. And so I knew if I wanted to be an intensivist an attending intensivist at an academic center, I had to, um, switch. And so I had, uh, you know, again, met and really liked some of the intensivist anesthesiologists as a med student, went back and talked to them and kind of thought, yeah, you know, this I could really see myself doing. And so switched into anesthesia, went back to UCSF, did my anesthesia residency there, and then uh, came here to Johns Hopkins in 2014, did an ICU fellowship year, stayed on faculty, and then now have become the residency program director here, which is just a dream come true. I mean, as someone who really is passionate about teaching and education, to get to practice this field of both anesthesia and critical care that I really love and to get to really dedicate a huge part of my world and my career to teaching residents, working with residents, and I also help run some of the clerkships. So to the medical students too, it's just kind of, it's it's funny. I took a very crooked route to get here, but if you think back to, you know, at, to my time as an undergrad thinking I love teaching and I want to do teaching in an exciting way and be able to do it in a field that I'm, I really like, and I didn't know what that would look like then, but I just feel so blessed that now, you know, so many years later, I, I, that's where I am. That's exactly what I do. I get <laughs> to do, I get to do this stuff that I love clinically. And, and a huge part of what I do is just dedicated to teaching and to really thinking about education in a, in an exciting and creative way. So, um, so that's been, that's been great. So that's the career part. And then when I was a medical student, uh, and I'm happy to go into this story as in as much detail or not as you want, but, <laughs> in, but I, I did, uh, the short version is that when I was a medical student, I had an attending who was this amazing, just dynamic, incredible and beautiful woman who, when I knew I was no longer going to be working with her any longer as an attending, I managed <laughs> to pull together the courage to send her an email and ask her out, um, which thinking it was an incredible long shot, which it was, but uh, somehow maybe just all the stars aligned that day. Uh, <laughs> the it, 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 yeah, Actually, what happened is she got the email and thought, you know, well, if you ask her, she'll still to this day tell you she thought, first of all, who is this guy? I don't even remember him. <laughs> and secondly, she thought, you know, there's no way. 
But she sent the email to her friends to be like, can you believe this? And so, you know, of course, all her friends are doctors, too. And so the, the, the women wrote back to say, like, oh, that's weird. You know, like, who is this guy? The men all wrote back and said, oh, my God. It, you don't understand how much courage it took for him to ask you out. You were his attendant, <laughs> you know, and they all said, Betty, you have to give him at least uh, go out at least one time, even if you're not interested, like go out one time, have dinner and then say bye and never see him again. But you can't punish that kind of courage. I you know, you it. have to you have to give him credit for having that courage. And so she checked with her boss, actually, believe it or not, to make sure it was, you know, not like breaking any uh, university rules if she did this. And it turned out it was long as she wasn't going to be evaluating or supervising me anymore, which she wasn't. It was it was allowed. It was up to her. And so so she did, in fact, agree to have dinner with me. And uh, amazingly, seven months from that from that first date, we got engaged in six more months. So 13 months after that first uh, date, we got married. So it worked oh, out. Oh, my goodness. That is amazing. Um, I, I love these stories. I love these stories. And, yeah, I mean, you know, talk about you know, brave enough. <laughs> right, right. Well, there you go. Uh, you know, and I I thinking back, I mean, it's so funny. I, I remember writing the email um, to her and I remember debating sitting there it was the evening. I can I mean, it feels like it was yesterday. And I remember very much thinking like, you know, I'm reading it over and I'm like, I can't send this. But then, you know, thinking, oh, man, but I'll never know if I don't send it. You know, I'll never know if it could have been possible. And then I remember kind of going back and forth with my cursor over the send button. This is Gmail. And interestingly, Gmail had just at the time recently come out with the ability to, to hit that unsend button. And so I hit send and then I totally panicked. I thought, oh, my God, what if like she sends it to the dean and I get, you know, <laughs> sanctioned? And so I I ripped my cursor over to try to hit the unsend button. And I can see the little white cursor flying right past the unsend button. And then it disappeared when I tried to get back to it. It was too late and I couldn't unsend it. Oh, and, my uh, gosh. And as it turned out, I'm glad I didn't. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, it was an incredibly uh, good risk to have taken now in retrospect. I love it. I love it. That is such an amazing story and such an amazing story to be able to tell your children. You know, like exactly. That's so fun. No, that's very true. And 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 so you had asked about them. So yes, we were blessed to have three daughters. And um, so the first two, Ava, who's now eight, Leah, who's seven, um, they're eighteen months apart. They were both born in San Francisco. Uh, Ava was born three days before I started my CA one year, oh, and wow. um, Leah was born halfway through my CA two year. And um, and then Grace, the the kind of twenty two month old is uh, was born here obviously in baltimore um so we have three daughters but i haven't thought for a long time exactly as you say that one of the lessons i i really want to you know i want to tell them that story and i want and i want them to know that i want them to take risks you know i want mm -hmm. them to um to decide what's worth it to them to take risks and to be okay with failure i mean that's one of the things that you know obviously um <laughs> I could have failed big time with that email um, and uh, by some you know, stroke of, of luck, I didn't. But uh, but, you know, I think that's a, a huge lesson to learn. And uh, is that you, if you never take those big risks, you're never going to win big. And I consider this the all time biggest win of my life to have, to have landed my wife. Uh, certainly, I do not deserve her, but I've somehow managed to, uh, to make it happen. So, Well, that's awesome. And, you know, you're I love the story of how you landed into teaching. 
certainly you are incredibly good at it. Uh, you were chosen as one of the winners of the ASA SEA Distinguished Educator Award. And the fact that you just finished training five years ago and you won the most prestigious education award in our country for our society, for our specialty is pretty unreal. And that to think about the reach that you have through the podcast, um, teaching, like, was there a point where you were like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to launch this podcast. Probably when there were very few podcasts from a medical education, kind of from an academic space, uh, versus I'm going to focus more on the traditional kind of routes of teaching. I mean, certainly you do both as a program director, but was that taking a risk? Cause to me, it, it, probably in my mind, I would think there would be risks, you know, pitching this idea and doing this, like launching this huge different way of teaching in our specialty. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first I'll just say, you know, it was incredibly humbling to be awarded that distinguished educator award and to, you know, see my name besides really just uh, beside really incredible and, and longstanding mentors and just people who have set the the tone in, in anesthesia education for decades and, you know, just um, couldn't couldn't be more humbling. It was an absolute honor uh, to have been been given that award. So I, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up only because I, I think that the, you know, the people um, on that list with me deserve really to to be honored for it. Um, and I can only say it was uh, it was just an incredible feeling to, to even be considered for it. Um, but I will say the podcast is, uh, you know, it's an incredible piece of what I do. I love it. Um, it's so fun, as, as you know, of course, to to get to have people on who are real experts on stuff. And I learned so much from doing it. You know, where it came from was actually, interestingly, that when I was an ER intern, so when I was an emergency medicine intern, um, everybody, everybody I knew, as far as I know, every emergency medicine resident in the country listened to what was called EMRAP, which standed for, it still stands for Emergency Medicine Reviews and Perspectives. And it was this podcast put on by a couple of uh, faculty at USC, and they did this incredible job. And it was actually delivered a little differently. It was a kind of a one-time bolus that came out once a month, and it had maybe like 10 hours or so of material once a month. Uh, but they would do different kind of cover different t- clinical topics, review a couple of papers, do a couple of interviews and everybody listened to it. And it was really fun because, you know, you could always you learned a lot from it. You could kind of ask your attendings about it. You could talk to your other co-residents about it, whether at your program or, you know, at a conference or something, because everybody listened. So it was this thing and it was a great way to learn. And I'm a I'm a runner. I run every day. And so I could listen while I was running and feel like I was you know learning while working out. And I also found that I retain stuff a lot better when I'm exercising and learning at the same time because my brain is awake. And so uh, so then I switched into anesthesia and I said, oh, okay, now I need to find the anesthesia equivalent of EMRAP. And it didn't exist. And I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I was like, there has to be something. And really, at the time, this was, you know, 2000 and. Uh, I guess, 11. And uh, there was there was nothing. I mean, there may have been a few random kind of podcasts, but nothing, anything like um, what was what existed in emergency medicine. Uh, and, and this, I've, as I subsequently have looked at, emergency medicine is just was then and still is far ahead. I mean, there are just dozens and dozens and dozens of kind of highly yeah, regarded right. emergency medicine podcasts out there. Um, and so, you know, I remember at the time as a, as a resident thinking, oh, 
you know, somebody needs to do this in anesthesia. <laughs> and, and yeah, the and famous thinking, last words, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And think, and I even thought, I wonder if I could do this, but I just had no concept of how I would even do it. And of course, as a resident, very little time to do it. And so, you know, nothing ever came of that at the time. Uh, and then when I finished training, I was kind of got involved early on with helping with the residency program here. So I would give lectures whenever they needed or, you know, do, do teaching whatever I could. And the program director at the time, my predecessor's program director said to me at some point, you know, do you know of any audio resources? Uh, Cause our residents are always asking me for audio resources. And I said, that's so funny. I have thought for a long time that we need to have uh, an audio resource in anesthesia. And that was kind of the final little kick that I mm-hmm. said, all right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try this. I had no idea how. I had no technical ability at all. I didn't know what I was doing. But I said, you know, and I've believed for a long time. One of the lessons I think, you know, I, I actually think my, my um, mother uh, kind of told me this a long, long time ago is if you wait till you have everything you need and you're 100 percent ready, you're never going to launch anything. Right. Yeah, You're never going to so start true. a project. Yeah. And so she said, I think at the time I remember this when I was a kid, she said something like, you know, 75 percent. But you got when you think you're 75 percent there. Well, I feel like I was about, you know, five percent there. I had no <laughs> idea how to record. I had no idea. But I said, look, at the very least, I'm going to uh, take a lecture that I already give to the residents. You know, I've already I already give the talk and I'm just going to record it. And then, you know, I'll send it around to the residents and, you know, at least then they'll have an audio resource. So. I didn't even know how to do that, but I was able to figure out that if I sit down in front of my computer and open up GarageBand and push record and start talking, uh, that that will, in fact, you know, produce an MP3. And so I was able, I did that and I sent it to the residents. And one of them said, this is great. You should A, do more and B, put this on iTunes. And I said, you know, well, that sounds fine, but I have no idea how to do it. Can you help me? <laughs> and, um, and sure enough, he was able to help me you know, create a website, put it on iTunes and go through all those stages. And, uh, and that's how ACRAC launched. And it's funny, if you listen to episode one, the audio is absolutely horrible. I didn't even have a microphone. I was literally just talking into the air with my laptop in the area. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then, you, you know, obviously learned more and, and delved more into it over time. And, well, uh, you know, don't, don't you feel like being working in the field that we work in kind of helps you take more risks in the fact that like this, because I find myself thinking all the time as I'm doing this, you know, entrepreneurial things and things that I never saw myself doing in my career. I think to myself, okay, last night we cooled someone to 18 degrees and then we restarted their heart. and Like I got them upstairs. So uh, to the ICU, I'm fairly certain I can figure out how to write a business plan. Like these are the things that happen in my mind. I tell myself, I'm like, okay, if I fail at this like podcast or if I fail at this blog or if I go and give a talk and it fails, nobody's at the end of the day, nobody's dying. So this is how I rationalize it. I don't know if other physicians do that or it's just me. Do you ever do that? Do you ever find yourself like rationalizing things like, okay, this is really not a big failure if I fail at this. Oh, and 100%. I, I think all the time, you know, like this is, when we think about, right, we've, we've got these incredibly sick people we, we get through or we make it, you know, we have somebody who we came into an ICU, I come into a week attending the ICU and, you know, a patient who seems like they're not going to make it through my week. And, and not only do we get them through, but they're doing much better. You know, we make these, we have these successes. So, 
you know, for sure. If the worst thing that happens is that, you know, nobody listens to my podcast, <laughs> no problem. No exactly. problem. I'll take it. Exactly. And I love that you, I love something that you said about what your mom taught you, because I always tell my kids and I, I see this sadly, you know, when you see your kids having your own uh, misgivings or your own personality flaws. And then you see them in your children and you're like, Oh goodness, they inherited that for me. But one of my children is a perfection. I mean, probably two, I think are really have more perfectionistic tendencies. And I know for myself that perfectionism for me is paralyzing. Like if, if I think I can't do something perfect, then I really try to stay away from it. And I see it in my children as well. And I'm constantly telling them, you know, perfection, your perfectionism is paralyzing you. It's, you're not even going to try to do this because you think you can't, you, you can't master it. Um, and I know for myself, like I had my blog and my website done for about eight months before I hit publish. And it was my husband that literally was like, if you do not hit publish on that thing, I'm going to do it for you because <laughs> you keep changing everything. Like I just wanted it to be perfect, but it was never going to be perfect. It's still not perfect. So do you think that physicians are, are more of the people in the scientists sciences, especially in medicine are more likely to be perfectionists than in other fields? Yeah. And you know, that is definitely my impression. And we, I think within medicine, we, we talk about that quite a lot. And I, I think it's probably true. Obviously I, you know, without being in those other professions, it's kind of hard to, to know what it feels like to be in them. But I can say that I do think it tends to be the, as you've alluded to, the, the personality type that goes into medicine and what it leads to, uh, in addition to, to what you mentioned, which I think a lot of people can share that same experience, but it's also a feeling that, you know, you think everyone else is perfect. And so there's this fear, not only of being imperfect, but of being found out mm-hmm. as being imperfect. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is the imposter syndrome. And it's so, as I know you've seen too, you know, it's so present, not, uh, you know, I see it a lot in our trainees, of course, it's present in the practicing faculty too. But it can, that can be paralyzing as well. This thought that, you know, if I ask a question, if I say I don't know, or I ask this question, then they're going to realize that I'm not perfect, right? That I don't, I don't belong here. Yes, I don't. Right. Uh, and that's, that's such a huge problem. Uh, it's why it's, I think, so powerful for our trainees to hear us talk about our own failures because mm-hmm. otherwise that they'll never feel comfortable doing it themselves. And, yeah. And it's really interesting because if I think back to like the top five things that I learned from an attending, it was not actually how to do, how, how to practice a specific mode or modality or treatment. It was how to be professional, professional, like professional attributes I learned from them. And Mm -hmm. probably one of the biggest lessons I learned was one of my attendings made a mistake once and he told everybody in the room that he made the mistake, that he dosed the wrong medication and I, I think he saw my face because he just, he told, you know, he knew I, that I knew he did it. And then he just told everybody and I was shocked and he looked at me and he said, never let your ego get in the way of taking good care of a patient. And it mm-hmm. just stuck with me. Like it has stuck with me forever. And that in those moments where I've made a mistake, which all of us make mistakes in medicine, it is a human work and we are humans. So, so yep. we all make mistakes. And I've had that like fear, you know, that kind of horrible pit in your stomach when you realize you made a mistake and it's like, Oh my gosh, do I, do I just try to fix it before? Or do I ask for help or do I tell everybody? And 
I always like remember that statement. And I, I thankfully, you know, I've, I just, I have the courage to say, I just made a mistake. This is what just happened. I need some help or we're going to have to fix this or we have to change this. And, um, and I do it because I was taught that. Right. And so I think it's really interesting if we reflect, um, and, and we, you know, so often our kids don't see this. In fact, I just, you know, I have this book coming out that I wrote and I gave it to my father last month to read. I got a couple advanced copies. So I sent one to my dad and I knew my father would be pretty honest with me, um, about the book. And I also thought he would be kind in his delivery of, of the review. So I had him read it first, but interestingly, I write about imposter syndrome in there. And so my dad called me after he read the book and he said, you know, one of the things that really, I, I learned a lot through this book. And I said, Oh, you, you know, I did not expect my father to, to tell me he learned something. Um, yeah. and he said, I realized I didn't know there was a name for it, but you know, I've, I suffered from imposter syndrome throughout my entire 35 year career as an engineer. Mm. And I mm. said, what? I mean, I was so shocked because my perception of my father is this very successful engineer has patents and all these things and very confident person. And I just, I never saw that ever once in my, I've never seen the hint of that in my father. And he said, you know, I, I've reflected about it. And I think it's because, uh, I grew up, you know, really poor and I, w- I was the only person in my family to grad first graduate to go to college and graduate from high school and all these things. And I just remember at every meeting I ever led or any conference or talks I gave, I always thought I don't belong here and they're going to find mm-hmm. out. And I, I, it was amazing to me that, you know, I learned something about my, that my 70 year old father, who I, in my mind think like had this really successful career struggled with imposter syndrome his whole life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's so amazing to hear. Right. And this, and it just goes to show you that you can't look at someone and say, well, you know, look how, look how with it they are. Look how, how expert they are. Look how successful they've been and therefore think they don't feel it too, because it's pervasive. So how do we, how do you, in today's world, you have these three daughters and they're young, but they're growing and they're learning as a father who has a busy career. How do you balance? Like, I know this, you know, the question is always like, well, there's no such thing as balance, but how do you kind of manage being an educator, a teacher, a program director, a busy clinician, and also a hands-on parent? Yeah. So that is probably the biggest challenge that I find myself struggling with. Um, It is, uh, and part of that is, you know, I don't know what the right, what is the right balance, right? I mean, for example, you have everything from, you know, I could, in theory, be a stay-at-home father and, and that spend all my time with them to, you know, uh, the other extreme and essentially never be home. And so I'm obviously at neither of those. I, uh, I, if anything, feel like I struggle to find as much time as I would like. I do an okay job, uh, uh, I think, of finding time with them. I, I've, what things, strategies I've tried. I th- so let me say, I think this is a problem that if you don't acknowledge as a full-time physician or probably a full-time anything, but I can only speak what I know, which is as a physician, then you're, you're not going to be able to handle it well because you have to acknowledge that it's a challenge. And, and so then if you acknowledge something as a challenge, just like 
a diagnostic challenge at work or, you know, a challenging central line, whatever it may be, you have to come up with a plan. You have to have a plan to deal with it. And so my wife and I have, you know, really tried to from very early on when we first started having kids to think about this and to think about how are we going to do this in a way that does let us find at least a decent balance. Uh, and so my my plan and the strategies I've used are, are a few. So one is that though I don't have a huge abundance of time, I try to make the time I do have really worthwhile. And one of the things that I realized early on is that there's nothing like one-on-one time. You can't beat one-on-one time. And so while certainly we do family things together. I I always try at least once a month, hopefully more, but at least once a month to do what we call special time with each of my daughters. So I'll take Ava, for example, I'll, you know, pick her up early from school or, you know, get her as soon as she gets out of school and we will go and she gets to pick and they usually, it's going to involve food, right? So they want to go get <laughs> hot chocolate and a, and a cake pop at Starbucks and, you know, and we'll sit there and we will have our hot chocolate and we will chat and we'll talk about you know, what's going on at school and her friends. And we'll maybe play, they like to play this 20 questions game where, you know, you try to guess what the other person's thinking. Um, And lately Ava's been really into, she loves, she reads a ton of books on her own, but she also loves when I read her books because I do voices for the characters and stuff. And so she'll ask me to read something to her. So we'll bring a book along and I'll read. And I'm sure everyone else in Starbucks is like, what is this guy doing? But, you know, it's fun. And, uh, and so we have that special time. And then the next time is Leah's turn. Grace, who's only 22 months. It, we don't, I don't take her out for hot chocolate <laughs> yet, but I, I eventually will. I um, love this. So, I love this one-on-one time. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it is, there is nothing, you know, you just, I, I find, you know, that I cannot have the same level of interaction when certainly with the two older ones, when their sister's around, there's just too much. I mean, they get along great. They play great. They fight sometimes, but it's just not the same thing. So that is really important. And I think that Though I can't do that all the time, when I do it, it really makes a difference. They love it. I love it. And it allows us to have a a really nice connection. So that's one thing. Um, Another is that even just, you know, so we try to all sit down for dinner together whenever we can. And so I really prioritize trying to get home for that. I can't always. But when I can, I really do. And even if that means, you know, having to finish up, make a few more phone calls or deal with, a a, you know, a pre-op call or even, you know, deal with some situation that's come up, um, get some work done. I'll do it after the kids are asleep. So I'll be home for that dinner time, um, whenever I can. And then at dinner, you know, again, we try to have some structure around trying to make it, you know, worthwhile or meaningful. So of course, you know, we'll chat like anybody will chat, but we do some things that we kind of learned about. And I I wish I could tell you exactly where I learned about this or my wife may, may have learned about it. We may have read it online, but we do some things. So we, we go around the table at dinner every time we're, we're sitting down together and we all say at least one thing we're grateful for that day. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, just a way to kind of remember that we have a lot to be grateful for and uh, and focus on that instead of sometimes we get too wrapped up in the negatives. So we'll, we'll all say at least one thing we're grateful for. And then we do a variety of other things that we kind of alternate. So sometimes we'll ask the girls to say something, a risk they took that day. So what's something you did that was, a, that was something risky, you know, that you had to be brave to do? Um, sometimes we'll ask them, what's, what's a way you failed today? What's mm-hmm. something you tried and, and did not succeed? And we try to celebrate those because we want it to be, again, a chance to, you know, if you're not failing, you're obviously not pushing yourself enough. So what's something that happened? And then what's something kind you did today? Is How did you help somebody today? So we'll do that. And then the last one sometimes we do is, you know, if you could go back 
what is there something you did that you would do differently if you could do it again, really trying to, you know, build in some reflective practice just to everyday life. So that I think, you know, as opposed to everybody's doing their own thing and, you know, rushing through and that kind of gives that dinner conversation time some focus that is makes it pretty meaningful, I think. And then we do you know, some bedtime routines that involve, you know, reading, like I mentioned, my my daughters like when I read them a, a book and and do the characters and stuff like that. And even though they both can read perfectly well on their own, that's something that we try to work in. So it's not, you know, I'm not spending hours every day with them, but I try to make the time that I have as meaningful as it can be. And that I think works well. I, I again, don't feel like I've mastered it. Uh, and there are certainly bumps along the way. But, um, you know, I, I think it works to an extent. And, and don't you find that each, you know, I love these, like it's intentional. What you described is like intentional parenting. Um, and it doesn't have to be major, you know, it doesn't have to be a trip to Disneyland for a kid, like a trip to Starbucks makes their whole day. Um, and I found that, you know, so I have four kiddos and I find that it's really interesting. There's definitely phases of parenting. I'm, I'm feel like a a little schizophrenic right now. My husband and I do because we're parenting teenagers and then we have elementary, our nine-year-olds like are, are so so easy right now. Our youngest child is like by far the easiest. He's compliant. He wants to snuggle still. He'll eat whatever you put in front of him. He doesn't have an attitude. There's no phone. Like it's so easy parenting him. Um, and we laugh because we're like, gosh, you know, you go through when they're small and they're, they're difficult. And then, you know, you don't sleep a lot. And then you kind of have this middle age, uh, child age where, you know, they're eight or nine or 10 or 11 and they're, they're pretty hanging out and they're pretty good. They can feed themselves and dress themselves. And then all of a sudden you go into this terrifying secondary stage. And, and at every stage though, I find that there's such blessings to me. Like, people ask, tell me all the time, you know, oh my gosh, how do you have four kids and do all this? And yes, it's difficult. And there's a balance that is, that I haven't quite figured out yet, but I'm, but I can tell you that my kids are the biggest source of joy in my life. Like if I, I can't imagine going through some of the hardships we see in medicine, um, without that joy. And so to me, they, as, as much as it it is difficult at times, don't get me wrong to be a parent. There's so much joy surrounding being a parent that it's like an instant pick me up. You know, I mean, they're always happy to see me. I can say that when I walk in the door, my kids act like I'm, you know, a Disney princess (laughs) and and I could have had the worst day and have failed at everything or feeling really down about something or had a paper rejected or whatever it is. And I walk in the door and I'm a winner to them. And I just, I, I count it a blessing. I feel like my kids are such a blessing to me. Um, they aren't a burden. Like I, I'm so blessed. I'm, and I know you feel the same way. Um, yeah, there's no question. I mean, that that moment that you're describing, which I have just, you know, has been such a core piece of my happiness now for eight years, which is that there's for, for eight years, there's been at least one little girl who, when I walk in the door, comes screaming, saying, <laughs> daddy, 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 right, and jumps up into my arms and I swing him around. And like you said, I mean, it doesn't really matter how bad the day was. Mm -hmm. That is just pure joy. And I'll Mm -hmm. tell you, I actually am dreading when my older two 
no longer want to do that. And I don't know when <laughs> I know. it's going to happen, but I know it's going to happen. I know. I know. It's so difficult. It's I uh, this past week, I went to my first college prep parent meeting and wow. I'm not even joking. I cried the entire way there. I was yeah. di- coming directly from work. So I rushed to get there and I sat in the parking lot and had to will myself to go in. And my husband was at practices for the kids. And I sat there and listened and I wanted to storm the, the, the podium and like throw everything in the trash that the lady was telling us. And I came home and my husband's like, well, how was it? What'd you find out? And I'm like, I cannot talk to you about this tonight. I'm in such a state of shock and anger. And, and I'm so grumpy about this that I I can't even process it right now. I'm going to have to, we're going to have to wait till the weekend till I have a few days. And he was like, wow. And I was like, yeah, I, I, because the thought of it come, it come, it's just so fast and I'm not ready at all. And, and, and as much as it's difficult to have teenagers at times, I am gonna, I don't even know what I'm going to do when he leaves. I'm my oldest and is, um, a sophomore. So he's got a couple more years, but yeah, we're very close. And, and, you know, he's, I just don't even know, Jed. I'm not, I can't even, I can't imagine. <laughs> so, so. I think it's really interesting that you have all girls. I grew up in a family of all girls, uh, no brothers. Okay. And recently I read a book called The Confidence Code a couple years ago. Um, and it's a great book. And there's actually one, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, but there's one for girls, one for younger girls. The authors have written okay. one for kids. And one of the things that they talk about in the book is that girls that grow up in a house uh, with a father figure who don't have brothers tend to, um, one, typically one or two of the girls kind of identifies as like the, the oldest boy and dads Mm. of girls, if they, if there's no boys in the house tend to push their daughters more. And like, there's typically more, um, sports achievements and things like that. And so I was reading this and I was like, oh my goodness, this was me and my dad. Like I was his son. Like I was the son that he pushed to do all these things. And so it was funny because I was talking to my dad about it. And, and I said, dad, I remember you, like you never said I couldn't do this because I was a girl. You actually pushed me to do things. Sometimes I didn't even want to do, but you're like, you're going to do this. You're going to go, you know, my dad loves to hunt and he would always say like, you're going to go hunting with me. And I would be like, what? Mm. I don't want to go hunting with you, but I love spending time with him. But he, he would push me to achieve things too. He's like, you know, you really should try out for this or you should go for that. And so I don't know if you see that or if you notice that, but I, I, I felt, I thought that was really interesting in the book, how they talked about that. That is interesting. I don't know that book, but I certainly will check it out. I I do think um, we just kind of a, a standing joke in my family uh, that the um, that my oldest daughter will try anything, any food. I mean, no matter how obscure or disgusting looking <laughs> or if if I am eating it, right? Like she just loves. That is a way that she and I have bonded is over food because I love food. I absolutely love food and I love trying, you know, different and exotic and unusual foods. And she may not continue to eat it, but she, you know, the middle one, Leah, will run away as fast as her legs will carry her if you put something other than like, you know, the most basic possible food. But uh, but Ava will try. So, you know, uh, I I think that um, 
that there's a little bit of that of her really identifying with me. She's kind of been a, 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 a daddy's girl, so to speak, um, you know, for a long time. And it's it's fun to have that connection. Um, but, you know, again, not not uh, having any sons. I can't compare what it would be like, um, though I certainly wouldn't change it for the world. I mean, I just love uh, having girls. You know, I, I do. I love the title of that book that you mentioned, The Confidence Code, because I do think that, you know, one of the major, major goals my wife and I have have always had um, is really and again, I, it may well be the same if we had sons, but certainly with the, knowing that we have the kids we have is wanting them, wanting to have uh, our daughters grow up confident in themselves. And, you know, if that if I had to pick only one thing I could, you know, grant them uh, or help them achieve somehow, it would be that. Now, I don't know the magic formula. Um, but we are always trying to figure it out. We're always trying to think, how can we help them be as confident in themselves and the people that they will be as possible, you know, so that they, you know, as we said, we, they will make mistakes. They're not going to be any more perfect than we are, but they make their own mistakes and not, you know, mistakes because they're trying to be someone they think other people want them to be, that they're, they're their own person and they're confident in that and they feel good about that. Um, and that's, that's a huge goal. Yeah. Well, I think you're doing a great, you two are doing a great job because it sounds like they already are. And, and, um, I look back to several things that in my life have happened and I know it is because I had a strong relationship with my father who constantly encouraged me to do things. And I didn't even, I'd never appreciated it when I was at home, not even probably in college, not until probably in the last 10 years. Um, as I speak to so many women and I realized like they, there's so many people that didn't have that men and women who didn't have that. And so, um, certainly I am a product of, of having a, a father who constantly, you know, poured into me and, and encouraged me to take risks and do things. Um, and so I think that's awesome that you have such a strong relationship with your girls and you're modeling that. And certainly they have a mother who sounds like she's an amazing role model to, to model after. Um, yeah, that is, I, you know, I can't overstate that enough. I mean, I, I really think that, um, you know, I just feel so, so lucky that my daughters have my wife as their mother. You know, it, she is an incredibly strong woman, uh, an incredibly confident woman. And so, you know, in a way, I almost feel like it's cheating. Like instead of, you know, a lot of the work, <laughs> a lot of the work I feel like, you know, that I would have to do and that, that we would have to do. It's kind of feels like we just get because they see her, they get to be around her and, and you know, learn through osmosis. Right. I mean, and so that's that is really a blessing. And, uh, and I'm so, so grateful for it because I think a, a huge amount of it is that, you know, and, and girls learn from their moms, you know, they may, they may feel attached to their dads. Right. And they may kind of, um, especially again, I'm, we're not there yet, but you hear these stories that girls, when they become teenagers, you know, they don't want anything to do with their mom and maybe they don't want to do with either parent, but if any, if anything, they don't, they're, they don't want to be with their mom, but they may still have some, you know, uh, love for their dad. But I think whether they'll admit it or not, or whether they even know it or not, they are so influenced by their mom from the from the earliest stages because, of course, you know, their mom is the one who looks like them and who has the same, you know, kind of hair and yeah, who, right. you know, is, is, wears the same kind of clothes. I mean, again, with exceptions, but for the most part. And, uh, you know, that that connection, I think you can't you just can't discount it. And so that is a huge, huge aspect. And I feel very lucky that my my kids have my wife. Well, I have I'm just so thankful that you came on the show today. And um, 
Okay. I, I always do a little thing at the end of my podcast where I talk about like a favorite item or product or something that I've been using that I'm in love with. Is there anything, it could be a food, it can be an app, it can be a, you know, something you bought at Target, anything that you or your family cannot live without these days. Oh, interesting. Well, so the first thing that comes to mind, I was, I like to cook. I, I think it's a lot of fun. And I'm always trying to, I'm always challenged by and trying to come up with, um, something that my, my kids will, you know, will eat and like, and that's healthy. And that's <laughs> Which real is challenge. so challenging. And that is the big challenge. Now, so it's not I, pizza, would, you mean, or pasta, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, so, and my, you know, as I said, Ava will taste anything, but that doesn't mean she'll eat it long-term. And so, uh, so I was very proud of myself that the other day I kind of had this brainstorm and I thought, all right, look, you know, what are healthy things that they will eat? So cheese, I actually, you know, again, some people may debate this, but I'm very much in the, you know, help the kind of thought process that, you know, fat was demonized for a long time and actually is very, very healthy. And that the, you know, kind of high fat, low carb uh, may well be the, the thing we were missing for a long, long time. And so, you know, we, we promote a lot of cheese. And so my kids love cheese. So I thought, all right, cheese and vegetables, uh, how could I do this? And then actually what happened was, my my wife had gotten a quiche somewhere and I was thinking, oh, quiche is so interesting, right? Because it takes eggs, which is, you know, everybody loves eggs. And then it puts vegetables inside kind of hidden in there, right? And so I thought, all right, this is what I'm going to do. So I took uh, a lasagna pan and, you know, my kids don't love lasagna, I th- like traditional lasagna, I think because ricotta cheese isn't like a kid cheese, right? It's right. a little bit more of like a sophisticated cheese. And so I took... Uh, some whole wheat um, lasagna uh, sheets, you know, of the, but just a few. So I put one layer on the bottom and then I layered it with a ton of mozzarella cheese, broke broccoli up into really small pieces and scattered it all over and then frozen spinach just in little chunks all over there. And then I put just a very thin layer of um, no sugar uh, marinara sauce. So marinara sauce is just tomatoes and, and herbs and spices, but no sugar. And then uh, another one more layer of the thin uh, whole wheat lasagna slices, uh, uh, noodles, and then repeated the vegetables and cheese and sauce and then baked it. And so it was mostly vegetables and cheese with a very small amount of whole wheat pasta. And they loved it. They absolutely loved really? it. Really? I'm going to try and I realized, this. <laughs> yeah. And I realized this is basically pizza, right? Without the dough, <laughs> it's just mozzarella cheese, vegetables and sauce. And a very little bit of, of at least whole wheat pasta, which I think is reasonable. And and it's but, you know, they're mostly eating broccoli, spinach and cheese. And I and they loved it. I couldn't believe it. And so that's, that's, that's awesome. my yeah, I was very excited by this invention. And uh, <laughs> I made I made I had made that first one for them to try. And then when they liked it, I made a giant one, cut it up and stuck it in the freezer. And so now we can pull it out. That is so smart. I, um, oh, cooking and me, let's just, I don't, I, we won't even get into it. I actually like <laughs> to cook if I have like a week off, I then, but it's just, it make figuring out dinner is like so stressful. So yeah, I, well, this is what we do. We stick it in the freezer and then we can pull it out anytime. That's so, smart. you know, we, we cook a lot when we have the time. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I know everyone that is listening is going to want to check out your podcast. So tell us how to find you on Twitter, how to follow the podcast. Where are you on iTunes? Give us the the skinny. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. It was an absolute pleasure to get a chance to chat uh, as it was before. And I hope this is the first of many. Um, So I am uh, on Twitter at jwalpaw. That's J-W-O-L-P-A-W. And then the podcast, ACRAC, is on Twitter. It's at ACRAC Podcast. That's A-C-C-R-A-C Podcast, all one word. Um, 
And uh, the podcast itself is uh, is available at the website, ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com. And then also, of course, on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts and uh, Pocket Casts and any, anywhere you get your fa- favorite neighborhood uh, podcast. Um, and so all of that, uh, people are welcome to check out uh, anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And if you're listening, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, live brave. This has been an HSG production.